I have always been fascinated by the power and the importance of questions. Questions just absolutely fascinate me. Sometimes they aggravate me, but they also fascinate me at times. When Jordan was small, his favorite thing to say is, what's that? What's that? And so we would travel across the area. We lived in East Central Illinois at the time, and we would get in the car, and you had to entertain Jordan when you were in the car, or else it was tough to have a trip. And so we had, yes, some of you know that experience. So we had his favorite book, Richard Scarry's Big Books of Motor Machines. And so we would go through that, and no matter how many times you said it, he would point at every picture and say, what's that? And one of us sitting in the back with him would say, well, that's an excavator, which was his favorite, by the way. And so we would go through, and that's a bulldozer. That's this. That's, this is a big truck. This is a big rig. And he'd come back, what's that? It's still an excavator. And so questions are how we learn as little kids. It is that questioning, that, that beginning to think about what's going on around me that we learn. I, I know that questions are central to how I learn yet today. It's also how I teach. I've noticed as I teach classes, I spend more time asking questions than I do providing answers, probably because I don't have the answers most times. But I throw out the questions, and they're just central to how I think. If you really want to engage me, ask me a question. And, and I probably don't have the answer, but I love thinking about it. In, in seminary, I had a guy named Dr. Aldwinkle as a New Testament, uh, really a theology professor, and Dr. Aldwinkle was a guest lecturer for the semester, had come down from Canada and was lecturing to us, and I happened to get him for the class. And so we go into the theology class expecting to be enlightened and illuminated by Dr. Aldwinkle. And Dr. Aldwinkle was a rather smallish man, gray hair, kind of like what I'm looking like these days. Uh, and, and Dr. Aldwinkle had just a hint of that Canadian-British accent among him, in his voice. And we all sit down anticipating, and Dr. Aldwinkle literally spent two full weeks, that's six classes, an hour each class, doing nothing but asking questions. He said, good morning, and then he started asking questions, and I start writing. And he does this for six classes, no statement whatsoever for six classes. And I was one of those people that I always sit right in front. The duller the professor, the closer to the front I sat, because that kept me alert and listening and, and from getting wandering off. And so I just kept moving closer to the front with Dr. Aldwinkle. I was finally in the front row that, that success. And finally, you know, we're all after class. What, this guy's supposed to be a guest lecturer? What's he, what's he doing? And finally, one of the students got enough courage up to raise their hand in that sixth class and said, Dr. Aldwinkle, i got to tell you, I appreciate the thought that comes in your questions, but six hours of questions, I don't understand. And he said, well, ladies and gentlemen, it's like this. If you ask the right question, you have a chance of getting the right answer. If you don't ask the right question, you will never get the right answer. These questions are the right questions that you need to be thinking about as we go through this semester. And too many of you have the wrong questions in mind. And so eventually he started lecturing, and we learned a lot around those questions. I learned a lot from Dr. David Garland, who was also one of my professors in seminary. At that time, a young professor is now uh, retired as the, uh, the head of Truett Seminary down in Texas. But Dr. Garland, we would, we would be studying a text. I had him for a lot of Greek classes. And we'd be studying a text, and someone would ask a question, and he'd say, you can't ask that question. What do you mean? 
This text is not applying to that. And you want to proof text your ideas, your thoughts, and put them and impose them on the scripture. This is not what Paul was talking about. This is not the text that you can ask that question of. And so you've got to have the right questions at the right time. I've been tempted over the years to, to preach a sermon series on questions Jesus asked, and even better, questions Jesus was asked by people. Jesus had already been asked on this Holy Week as we entered a lot of questions. And he's about to be asked a myriad more questions this week in the coming week of what we would call Holy Week. So as we come to Palm Sunday, Matthew's recording of it, we find a question standing at the very heart of the week's events and the day's events on Palm Sunday. And it's a question that's going to permeate the entire week and all the events of the coming week. Unfortunately, it's the wrong question. As we move into Holy Week, and we begin the story of Jesus' last week on earth, his earthly life, we find Jesus entering Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And on one level, Jesus is answering all the questions that have been asked of him up to that point. And he's also making a really strong statement. Jesus is adapting the practice here of the Hebrew prophets, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, by dramatizing his message. You know, when words finally fail you, Sometimes you've got to act out what's going on. You've got you to just act it out. And so Jesus practices the Hebrew prophet way of acting out his message. He comes riding on that donkey that we hear so much about. Mark and Luke remind us that this donkey has never been ridden before. And in, in, if you understand the Hebrew mindset, something that's never been used before and is now used for a purpose signifies the sacredness of the act. And so Jesus is telling us by riding on a donkey that's never been ridden before, this is a sacred act going on. This is a unique thing happening. You have some examples of that in the Hebrew text. Uh, uh, if you read the Hebrew text carefully, there was a time when if you wanted to have forgiveness for something, and usually it was a criminal act of some kind, you would take a red heifer. And this red heifer could never have a yoke on it, could never have been used in any way for anything. It was just had lived. And you would sacrifice that red heifer, the sacredness of the moment. This is a sacred animal set aside for a sacred task of forgiveness. If you remember the, the Ark of the Covenant, that any time the Ark of the Covenant was moved, it had to be moved on a new cart that had never been used for any other purpose, signifying this is a sacred thing that's happening here, removing a sacred item. And so Jesus comes riding on the donkey that's never been ridden, symbolizing to us that this is a sacred thing happening here on our first Palm Sunday. We know that kings ride on donkeys. We always think of kings nowadays riding on war horses, and we always get the war horse thing going. But kings ride on donkeys. And what that symbolizes is that they are coming in peace. So if a king really wanted to go somewhere and entered somewhere and send some kind of message, they rode the donkey to say, I'm a king of peace. I'm not coming to make war on you. Now, at times they wore, they rode war horses, but then they were in the act of following the way of war. And so Jesus comes saying, I'm a king of peace. Jesus is confronting Israel with a very definite message. I am your Messiah. I am your king. I am making that claim. We often talk about, Mark talks about the messianic secret where Jesus won't let anyone reveal that who he is and won't let the demons reveal that as they kind of say, oh, you're Jesus, you're, you're the son of God. He tells them, be quiet, he won't let anyone reveal that. But now Jesus is fully saying to the, the world, to the nation of Israel, I am your Messiah, I am your king, 
I am God's Messiah sent for you. He is answering the question, are you king? Yes, I'm king. But let me tell you what kind of king I am. I'm a king of gentleness. I'm a king of peace. I'm a king of humility. The people and the disciples and all those with him join in. They love this parade. It's a great idea. Uh, we, we often think about this parade being huge, and, and just, it probably wasn't. There were a lot of things going on in Jerusalem at that time, and, and, and it wasn't everyone in Jerusalem getting into this, but it was a big enough crowd that it got some notice. And they all begin to cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed to see who comes in the name of the Lord, which is the welcome for the Messiah. But the word Hosanna literally meant at that time, save us. And so they're crying out, Jesus, save us. You're God's Messiah. We think you are anyway. Save us. What is that? That's what we need. We need salvation. However, again, they're saying the wrong thing. What they want to be saved from are the Romans. They want to be saved from all the trappings and the challenges that go on around them. They do not understand what Jesus is bringing them. Matthew tells us that it was, it was a somewhat of an exciting event. And it uh, says that the whole city was stirred. I'm not sure that would be exactly right. But there's a lot of a stir going on about this guy, Jesus, who's coming to town. We know that the, the, the authorities are definitely worried about him. And Jesus, through his drama then, in this, as this whole city is stirred, invites the city to join the parade of God. And to invite them to join God's work of salvation. This is one last attempt by Jesus to say, Join the parade of life. Such sad words to have to say the parade passed him or her by. Choices have to be made here. Are you going to join the parade of life, the way of peace, the way of humility, the way of God, or not? Choices have to be made. You have to decide, are you going to stand on the street side and watch? Are you going to jump into the parade? Throw yourself into the parade of life with all you have. That's what Jesus is asking of them. Join the parade of life. Join the parade of God's work in the world. However, voices all around them are saying things like, "Uh, don't be foolish. You know, you jump in that parade, you're going to look silly. Stephanie asked me if I would be dancing down the aisle today with palms, and I said, I've done stranger things in churches. Uh, uh, I'm not sure Day Spring's ready for that, but uh, (laughs) one of these days I'll play my Motown and sing it. Uh, Maybe I won't sing, but I'll dance to it for you. You look foolish. You look silly. Don't do that. By the way, do you know where this parade is going? You don't really know. You're just kind of running down the streets. Listen, you've got a good, stable spot on this street. Why don't you just stay here? It's safe. Let those other fools jump in and and dance and celebrate and follow what they think might be the way of God. You're safe here. Stay where you are. Don't get all excited. That, That, after all, it's not what you're supposed to do. You know the authorities don't like this guy anyway. You're just going to get in trouble. So don't get into this parade of life. Don't even get into this way of investing your life fully in who you are and who God's created you to be to live that out because it's going to look different than everyone else because you really are yourself. And, and that's an un, not a great way to be, you know, to stand out, to have people see you. You just want to blend in. It's dangerous to stand out. Jesus is declaring, life is not something that can be hoarded and protected. That, after all, is not life. That's merely existence. 
Life is where you throw yourself in, where you go out in yourself. You try to make a difference. You involve yourself in the work of God. You involve yourself in making, touching other people's lives and making a difference like Pat talked about in her prayer. Jesus is making a bold statement via this parade. We have to decide if a wandering preacher riding on a beast of peace can lead the parade of life or is at a dead-end street. Jesus is urging, he's pleading with the crowds to join life's parade, to adopt the way of peace before it's too late, to hear the voice of God while they still have ears to hear. Through this dramatic entry, the king pleads with the crowds to see, to understand. But they don't do that, do they? They choose to question instead. And they're asking the wrong question at the wrong time. They ask, who is this? After all, Jesus has said and done out in the open. He's not been hiding. They have the nerve to ask, who is this? The first Palm Sunday was not a joyous festival as we celebrate today. It was a token of the blindness and fickleness of human frailties. An unwillingness and thus an inability to join the parade of life. We'll watch it pass by and we'll watch those other fools who jump in, but they don't even understand what they're doing. And though they do not join the parade of life, they're marching toward their own destruction. Jesus says, join the parade of life. If you hold back, if you don't join the way of God, you don't join the way of peace, Bad things are going to happen, as was exemplified in 70 A.D. when the Romans finally destroyed Jerusalem. Jesus says that's where you're headed unless you join this parade of life. The crowds and even the followers of Jesus had the right answers, they thought, to that question, who is this? Oh, he's the prophet from Nazareth, from Galilee. That's who he is. Wrong answer. Well, he's a good man. Yeah, wrong answer. He's a troublemaker. Yeah? Wrong answer. Soren Kierkegaard said there are only two possibilities in response to the parade of life, to this dramatic work that Jesus is doing. You can believe and accept him, or you can be offended by him. Anything else is an insult because Jesus truly believed himself to be the Son of God. And so in this parade, you've got to say, I believe it or I don't. It comes down to that kind of decision-making. The crowds got the wrong answers because they asked the wrong question. The right question for that day was the same as it is today. It is not the question, who is this? Jesus has been clear who he is. God has declared who Jesus is. Jesus had answered and was answering that question as he entered Jerusalem. The right question was then and is now, not who is this, but who am I? It's an existential question for us, each of us. Dramatically portrayed in that musical, I love that musical, Les Miserables, right? Uh, 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 If you remember, Jean Valjean begins to sing that song, Who Am I? He struggles with the kind of person he's going to be. Someone else can get his punishment. He is hidden out. Someone else has been blamed to being Jean Valjean, the criminal. And so he says, I can stay hidden and stay safe. And he sees Jean Matou who's been accused of being Jean Valjean. And he asked himself this question, who am I? Am I the kind of person that can let another person take my punishment? Who am I? How do I relate to God? 
how to relate to my other human beings. This is the question when we are confronted with the Christ of God. It is the question that is to be asked, not who is this, but who am I? When I'm confronted with Jesus Christ, who am I? Am I a disciple? Am I a follower? Am I someone that that stands on the street corner and watches the parade and then goes on home? You see, Jesus is not on trial here this day on who am I or who is this. Israel is. Jerusalem is. The world is. We are. As we stand today in the shadow of the cross of the Holy Week, as we see God reaching out to us, sending God's very own Son to us, this is the question, who am I? This is the question of the week for you. Who are you? Am I a person who sees my need to join the parade, to follow Christ, to have my life brought into relationship with God, to join in the streets that Christ walks? You see, the crowds had the question backwards, so they can't get the right answer. And that led them a few days later to go from cheering Hosanna to cheering crucify him. If you don't ask the right questions, you don't get the right answers. The crowds thought they were evaluating Jesus, but they were wrong. There's a story I love. It's probably apocryphal, but I love it anyway. Uh, uh, It's a story about a man who goes to the Louvre in Paris, tours around the Louvre. He's touring around. He's looking at all the great works of art. He looks around and spends several hours there and then says to a guard who happens to be standing in the gallery, I don't think they're so great. And the guard replies, The art is not on trial here today. You are. Amen.